talk of this morning. And again, we're very fortunate to draw on the Hopkins faculty again. Uh, Charlie Flexner is professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, and he is a rare bird who is both an infectious disease guy and a pharmacologist. So we've asked him to tackle the new hep C drugs and the possible drug-drug uh, interactions with a number of the drugs we use for HIV infection. Couldn't be a better guy to do it for us than Charlie. I'd like to welcome you all to the final presentation of the Johns Hopkins New York course. <laughs> um, Tripp and Judy asked me if I would do this presentation as a case-based discussion. And at first I thought, boy, that's odd. These drugs have only been approved for a few months and we're already doing a case-based discussion. But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. The more it made sense. And as far as I know, this is the first time we've done a pharmacology presentation at one of these meetings as a case-based. So uh, I think this is going to be fun, but it is a bit of an experiment. So bear with me here. Uh, okay, uh, we have our two pretest questions. Uh, and again, if you don't know the answer, just uh, give it your best shot. Uh, which statement best describes the effects of telaprevir on tenofovir PK? Uh, telaprevir decreases the tenofovir AUC by 30%, the area under the curve, which you can think of as average concentrations. Uh, telaprevir decreases the tenofovir AUC by 30%, but this can be overcome by increasing the dose from 750 to 1125 TID. Uh, number three, telaprevir does not alter tenofovir PK. Number four, telaprevir increases tenofovir AUC 30%. And number five, telaprevir increases tenofovir AUC 30%, but this can be overcome by decreasing the dose to 500 milligrams TID. So let's vote. Ah, okay. Great. Okay, good. We clearly have some work to do this morning. All right. Uh, next uh, question is about bosepravir. Which statement best describes the effects of bosepravir on midazolam PK? Uh, bosepravir decreases midazolam AUC, uh, but less than that seen with telaprevir. Bosepravir decreases the AUC to the same extent as telaprevir. Bosepravir decreases the AUC, but more than that seen with telaprevir. And then uh, the next three, bosepravir increases midazolam AUC, but less than that seen with telaprevir. Bosepravir increases midazolam AUC to the same extent. And bosepravir increases the midazolam AUC, but more than that seen with telaprevir. So let's vote on this one. Okay, good. This is great. I have not come here in vain. Uh, okay, so uh, first of all, what's all the excitement about? Let, let me make a general statement. There are a lot of people in this audience who have spent most of their clinical careers taking care of HIV infection. And even if you have no intention of treating HCV or HIV-HCV co-infection, and if you think you're never going to write a prescription in your life for an HCV DAA, Keep in mind that the prevalence of HIV-HCV co-infection in this country is so high, all of you are going to get asked questions by your patients about should I, do, should I treat my HCV or not, which DAA should I take, who are you going to refer me to. And so even if you don't intend to be the primary care provider for HCV, I think it's important that you know something about this area because if it's not important in your practice today, it is going to be important in your practice tomorrow. 
And one of the reasons there's so much excitement is because there's been a flurry of activity developing new directly acting agents for this disease. Bosepervir and telaprevir are the tip of the iceberg. This is a figure from about six months ago. And six months ago, there were already 33 new hepatitis C drugs in clinical development. These are not drugs in the laboratory. These are not drugs being given to rats or mice. These are drugs being given to people already. So this is a drug development scenario that is unprecedented in the history of mankind and womankind. So we all need to be prepared to deal with this because it is going to affect how we practice medicine. It's really quite exciting, but also a little bit daunting at the same time. So what's pharmacology got to do with it? I'm a pharmacologist, so I think everything is the answer to that question. But as you'll see in the next 35 minutes or so, there's a lot going on in the realm of pharmacology of relevance to new drugs for HCV. And that includes the use of principles of pharmacology to identify the proper doses and regimens for these drugs, the use of pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic modeling to make predictions about levels of adherence and resistance that will be seen when these drugs are in use, pharmacogenetic principles. We heard a little bit about that from Dave Thomas earlier this morning. The possibility of pharmacokinetic enhancement, as has been done for the HIV protease inhibitors, drug-drug interactions, and special populations. Okay, so let's start with our first case. This is a 60-year-old. Actually, let me first off thank Dave Thomas and Doug Dietrich for providing me with these cases. This was part of a workshop we did yesterday afternoon that I think was quite fun. But I'm going to share with you a couple of cases from that workshop. This is a 60-year-old Caucasian man with HCV genotype 1B infection diagnosed at least 11 years ago. He had liver biopsies in 2000 and 2008. In 2008, he had stage 2 on a scale of 4 fibrosis. He has a history of being vaccinated against hepatitis A and hepatitis B viruses, no ethanol, no IV drug use. His HIV status is seronegative, and he is HBS antigen negative. So his past medical history includes high cholesterol, seasonal rhinitis, and hypertension, and he's currently taking 25 milligrams a day of hydrochlorothiazide, 20 milligrams a day of atorvastatin, and fluticasone nasal spray each nostril once a day all year round because it's easier for him to keep his allergies under control if he does that. So you decide you want to treat this patient with peg interferon, ribavirin, and telaprevir. He's somebody who needs treatment, and you think you can offer him a lot of benefit with a new DAA. But what changes would you make to his medical regimen before you started his anti-HCV treatment? So that leads us to audience response question number one. So the options are increase his atorvastatin from 20 milligrams to 40 milligrams, change his atorvastatin to simvastatin, stop his fluticasone, stop his hydrochlorothiazide, get a pharmacology consult before starting HCV treatment. That's for the chickens. And number six, I would not change his medical regimen.
Interesting. Okay, so I asked the same question in our workshop yesterday, and although it was a smaller audience, it was only about 40 people, no one got the right answer yesterday. So today you guys did well. At least the plurality of you picked the right answer, uh, the best answer, and that is to stop fluticasone. As you'll see in a few minutes, telaprevir is uh, a significant inhibitor of cytochrome P453A4, which is the metabolic pathway for elimination of fluticasone. Like ritonavir, telaprevir has the capacity to significantly increase systemic exposure to fluticasone and other inhaled corticosteroids, and if administered for long enough, more than a few weeks, has the potential to produce iatrogenic Cushing's, and if the steroid is stopped, um, secondary Addison's uh, adrenal insufficiency. So I think that is the best answer. Um, atorvastatin, as we'll see, uh, if anything, you want to decrease his atorvastatin dose. Simvastatin is actually more likely to be affected by telaprevir than atorvastatin in a significant way, and that's a drug that probably should not be used in combination with telaprevir. Hydrochlorothiazide doesn't real, it's a renally cleared drug. It's unlikely to do anything bad when you combine it to, with telaprevir, and I think almost everybody uh, got that right. Um, pharmacology consult, I hope by the end of this session, you will all feel brave enough to manage some of these interactions without having to pick up the phone and call one of your pharmacology colleagues. Um, and uh, uh, then uh, not changing the medical regimen, I think, like HIV protease inhibitors, every time we subscribe, every time we prescribe an HCV protease inhibitor, one of the first questions you're going to have to ask yourself is, should I and how should I change this patient's current medical regimen? Okay, so let's move on. Um, so audience response question number two is a general question about uh, the drug interaction potential of telaprevir. So which of these is the most correct statement? Uh, number one, telaprevir has a low potential for causing clinically significant drug-drug interactions. Number two, telaprevir inhibits the cytochrome P453A4. Number three, telaprevir inhibits 3A4 and 2D6. Number four, telaprevir induces uh, 3A4. Number five, telaprevir induces 3A4 and 2D6. And number six, answers two and four are correct. So let's uh, vote. This is edgier music than we're used to in these uh, audience response questions. I like it, Trip. We're moving up in the world. We're in, we don't have the Brady Bunch theme this year. Okay, good. So the majority of you got the uh, answer right. Telaprevir is not known to be a P450 inducer. So there are a couple of important distinctions on this in this question, distinctions between ritonavir and telaprevir. So ritonavir and telaprevir are both potent P453A4 inhibitors, but unlike ritonavir, telaprevir does not induce any other drug metabolizing enzymes. There's no evidence that it's a P450 inducer. And in addition, unlike telaprevir, which is a moderate to weak inhibitor of 2D6, telaprevir is not known to have significant inhibitory activity against any drug metabolizing enzyme other than 3A4. So in some ways, it's going to make management of drug interactions with telaprevir, and as you'll see shortly, bocepravir, a little bit easier than what we've been used to with ritonavir. Okay, so this is just a, the 
a piece of data that, that helps to back this up. This is the effect of telaprevir on the pharmacokinetics of amlodipine in uh, healthy volunteers, recently published work um, showing that there is a significant increase in amlodipine concentrations in the presence of telaprevir. Amlodipine is a 3A4 substrate. Uh, telaprevir is a 3A4 inhibitor. The um, uh, 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 decreased slope of this uh, time drug uh, concentration uh, time elimination curve uh, is indicative of decreased clearance of amlodipine consistent with inhibition of the en enzyme that's largely responsible for its clearance. What about telaprevir and atorvastatin? This patient's taking atorvastatin for his hypercholesterolemia. So we're going uh, to have a question about that. So what's the best, uh, 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 which of these answers provides the best uh, uh, response to uh, the effect of telaprevir on atorvastatin? pharmacokinetics. Number one, telaprevir doesn't alter atorvastatin PK. Two, telaprevir decreases the atorvastatin AUC. Three, telaprevir increases the atorvastatin AUC. Four, atorvastatin decreases the telaprevir AUC. Five, atorvastatin increases the telaprevir AUC. Uh, six, I want to use one of my lifelines. And seven, I would like to buy a vowel. So take your chances on those responses, and let's see. Okay, uh, excellent. Sixty percent of you already know that atorvastatin is a 3A4 uh, substrate. Telaprevir is a 3A4 inhibitor. Telaprevir is likely to increase the atorvastatin AUC. Um, all of these other answers are uh, not necessarily the best, although I certainly understand if you want to take your chances on the wheel of fortune instead of learning about the pharmacology of telaprevir. Um, so this is uh, the data that backs that up. Again, recently published data looking at the impact of telaprevir on atorvastatin. And in fact, telaprevir increases the area under the curve for atorvastatin by about eightfold, which is interestingly almost identical to the effect of ritonavir on the atorvastatin AUC. So here's some direct evidence that the inhibitory effect of telaprevir and ritonavir on cytochrome P453A4 is very similar. Um, yesterday, Dave Thomas asked me, he said, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to manage all of these drug interactions with telaprevir and bosuprevir in my clinic. I just don't know how I'm going to do it. And I said, Dave, do you ever prescribe ritonavir? And he said, sure, all the time. I said, if you can prescribe ritonavir without having an anxiety reaction, you can prescribe bosuprevir and telaprevir without having an anxiety reaction. So, so the principles are going to be very uh, similar. And those of you who've been practicing HIV medicine are actually going to have a leg up on your other colleagues who treat hepatitis C because I, I know for a fact when I talk to gastroenterologists about drug interactions, their eyes glaze over. This is just not something they're used to dealing with. You, on the other hand, are the cutting edge of how to incorporate uh, knowledge about drug interactions into prescribing practices. So um, this is the impact of telaprevir on the uh, 3A4, cytochrome P450, 3A4-mediated major metabolite 
of atorvastatin, which is orthohydroxyatorvastatin. So uh, if you block, if you selectively block 3A4, your orthohydroxyatorvastatin concentrations should go down, and in fact, that's exactly what happens. The atorvastatin plasma concentrations go up by eightfold, and the metabolite concentrations go down by eightfold because you're selectively blocking the creation of that metabolite by 3A4, in, and these are data in, in human volunteers. Okay. He begins treatment with telaprevir, peg interferon, and ribavirin. Four weeks later, his uh, HCV RNA is undetectable, less than 18 international units per mil. However, he's complaining of influenza-like symptoms, probably from his interferon, rectal pain, probably from his telaprevir, and insomnia, also a common side effect of uh, interferon. In addition, he reports great difficulty taking his telaprevir three times a day. He didn't complain about the high-fat meal. Um, and wonders if there's any way he could take this drug once or twice a day instead. So that leads to our next line of questioning. Which of uh, these statements best describes the potential use of ritonavir to enhance the pharmacokinetic profile of hepatitis C virus protease inhibitors? Number one, ritonavir should not be used with HCVPIs. Number two, low doses of ritonavir significantly increase concentrations of telaprevir. Three, telaprevir decreases concentrations of ritonavir. Four, ritonavir boosts bosuprevir, but not telaprevir concentrations. And five, ritonavir boosts concentrations of some investigational HCVPIs, but not telaprevir or bosuprevir. So let's vote. There it is. Okay, uh, so this is interesting. Um, as I'll show you in a minute, um, the best answer is number five. Uh, at steady state, ritonavir really doesn't boost concentrations of telaprevir or bosuprevir. So you unfortunately can't use ritonavir to make telaprevir or bosuprevir a twice a day or a once a day drug. However, number two is partially right. So, you know, 70% of you got the answer got a right answer or an almost right answer. Ritonavir does increase concentrations of telaprevir after one dose, but at steady state, uh, that uh, boosting goes away. So um, this is um, uh, why a lot of people were interested in the possibility of ritonavir boosting of telaprevir and bosuprevir. These are uh, single-dose combination studies from rats published by Dale Kemp at Abbott in 2007, showing that, in fact, in rats, telaprevir increases, or ritonavir increases telaprevir concentrations, uh, eight-fold increase in the AUC and a 50-fold increase in the trough, and with bosuprevir, a 20-fold increase in the AUC and a 100-fold increase in the trough. So a lot of people were thinking that we were going to be boosting HCV protease inhibitors with our good old friend ritonavir. Unfortunately, those were single-dose studies. If you do multiple-dose studies and give ritonavir for 14 days, in this case to uh, healthy volunteers, human volunteers, what you see is that, indeed, you get a boost in telaprevir concentrations with the first dose of ritonavir, but if you continue dosing for 14 days, the telaprevir trough falls in combination with ritonavir, 
And that's probably because ritonavir is also a P450 inducer. And so it's inducing the metabolism of telaprevir at the same time it's inhibiting it. You don't see induction with the first dose of ritonavir, but 14 days later you're fully induced, and the hepatic enzyme induction of ritonavir totally counteracts its P450 inhibition. And at steady state, you really see no benefit of ritonavir on uh, telaprevir concentrations, and that's why we're not boosting telaprevir with uh, ritonavir. Um, there is, however, a boosting of the concentrations of some investigational HCV protease inhibitors at steady state, and there's a, uh, one HCV protease inhibitor, denoprevir, which is being developed by Roche, which is in late phase two and about to start phase three, and that's a once-a-day protease inhibitor if you boost it with uh, low doses of ritonavir. That raises the question, however, if you're treating someone who is co-infected with HCV and HIV and their HIV is not completely suppressed or is not treated, or if you're treating a mono-infected person who's still practicing risk behaviors for acquisition of HIV infection, what would happen if they acquired HIV while they were taking low-dose ritonavir to boost their HCV protease inhibitors? Does low-dose ritonavir select for HIV PI resistance? Well, I want to go back to some, I guess this is uh, history of medicine data. This is an article that David Ho and Marty Markowitz published in 1995 in the New England Journal looking at effects of ritonavir monotherapy. This is back in the good old days. Um, looking at the effect of 300, 400, 500, or 600 milligrams of ritonavir twice a day. Remember giving people 600 milligrams twice a day of ritonavir? It almost seems, uh, uh, almost seems medieval, doesn't it? But uh, nonetheless, the important point is that when, when uh, Markowitz and Ho gave 600 milligrams a day, 300 milligrams BID of ritonavir to HIV-infected patients, that dose had significant initial anti-HIV activity, but within 24 weeks, all of those patients had their viral load returned to baseline, presumably because all of these patients on low-dose ritonavir had acquired PI resistance. So if 600 milligrams a day of ritonavir causes PI resistance, H HIV PI resistance, will 100 or 200 milligrams a day of ritonavir also cause HIV PI resistance? And as a pharmacologist, I think the answer to that is almost certainly at least in a fraction of patients. So if we're going to use ritonavir as a boosting agent for investigational hepatitis C protease inhibitors, we're going to have to be very careful about making sure those people don't get infected with HIV, and if they're already infected, that their HIV is being suppressed with something other than low-dose ritonavir. Okay, so let's move on now to our second case. This is a 43-year-old man with HIV and HCV co-infection, a Caucasian man who has a, a hemophilia, chronic HCV, and suppressed HIV, treated uh, suppressed HIV infection. And he comes to the office expressing interest in having his HCV treated because he's heard about all the excitement about these new 
hepatitis C virus uh, protease inhibitors. One year ago, he had a cholecystectomy, which showed mild portal inflammation and cirrhosis. He's a married father of three, uh, doesn't use any illicit drugs, no tobacco or alcohol, uh, has a body mass index of 34, so he's a little on the heavy side, uh, has extreme facial wasting, presumably from his uh, anti-HIV therapy, hepatosplenomegaly, but no ascites or edema. And he's currently taking a boosted atazanavir at the standard doses once a day, a tenofovir and emtricitabine, recombinant factor uh, eight as needed for his hemophilia, and he does have a distant history of use of stavudine and didanosine. So let's uh, ask some questions about this co-infection case. What change would you make to this patient's medical regimen before you started anti-HCV treatment with telaprevir or bosepravir? Would you increase his atazanavir? That should say increase his atazanavir to 400 milligrams a day from 300 milligrams a day. Would you change his tenofovir and FTC to AZT and 3TC? Stop his atazanavir and begin raltegravir, 400 milligrams BID. Stop his ritonavir and continue the atazanavir. Stop all heart during the 12 weeks of telaprevir treatment. Or would you keep his medical regimen exactly like it is? So let's, uh, let's find out. Okay, good. Um, again, the plurality of you got what I think is the best answer. Um, as you'll see in a minute, um, of all of the boosted PIs, the one you can probably safely use with telaprevir is boosted atazanavir at the standard dose, 300 milligrams of atazanavir, 100 milligrams of ritonavir. Um, switching this patient to raltegravir is actually a rational thing to do, as we'll see in a few minutes and there are people who would advocate doing that. Um, I will say the one downside of raltegravir is it's a BID drug that should be given about every 12 hours. And if you combine it with telaprevir or bosepravir, which should be given every, uh, roughly every eight hours, that means your patient's gonna have to be taking pills four times a day for 12, at least 12 weeks, 12 weeks with telaprevir, longer than that with bosepravir. And there are people out there, believe it or not, I'm probably one of them, who would have a hard time taking pills four times a day, even if only for 12 weeks. So keep that in mind. Um, uh, AZT is a drug that should not be given in combination with interferon and ribavirin. So please don't make that mistake. There's clear synergistic anemia if you use AZT with interferon and ribavirin. Um, there's, uh, 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 stopping ritonavir is an interesting choice because as I said earlier, telaprevir probably has about the same P450 inhibitory effect as ritonavir and you might do just fine with unboosted atazanavir in the presence of telaprevir, but the data just aren't out there yet and that's a combination we need to learn more about. And stopping all heart, for 12 weeks of telaprevir treatment, I don't think we need to do that. I, I think we have enough options for treatment uh, that it's hard for me to imagine a situation in which I would take a patient who was fully suppressed on heart 
and say, I want to stop your antiretrovirals so I can give you 12 weeks of telaprevir. I just don't think we need to go there. Okay, so what do we know about telaprevir and antiretroviral drugs? Well, here are data that were presented uh, at this year's COI um, at looking at the uh, interactions between telaprevir and four HIV protease inhibitors. So this is the effect of telaprevir on the HIV PIs. And what you can see is that not much effect uh, of telaprevir on lopinavir. Um, a little bit of an increase, if anything, in the adizanavir concentrations. But surprisingly, a profound decrease in concentrations of darunavir and fosamprenavir for reasons that are not entirely clear. As I told you, uh, we don't think telaprevir is an inducer. This may be a drug interaction, uh, a, a drug transporter interaction, but the, the correct answer is we just don't know why this interaction occurs, but it's bad news and has led to the recommendation that telaprevir not be given in combination with darunavir or fosamprenavir. If you then look at the effect of HIV PIs on telaprevir, again, surprisingly, uh, the, uh, all four of these boosted PIs decreased telaprevir concentrations. Um, lopinavir by uh, uh, more than 50%, um, darunavir and fosamprenavir by more than 30%. Um, boosted adizanavir had the least effect on telaprevir, only a 20% reduction in the AUC. And so probably uh, this is uh, fine if you're going to be using telaprevir in combination with interferon and ribavirin. And that's led to this recommendation that you can co-administer telaprevir with boosted adizanavir. What about raltegravir? Well, there were data now. Uh, actually, we're going we're gonna to ask you about that first. What statement best describes the effects of telaprevir on raltegravir PK? Um, telaprevir does not alter raltegravir PK. Telaprevir decreases the raltegravir area under the curve. Uh, telaprevir increases the raltegravir area under the curve. Raltegravir decreases the telaprevir area under the curve. Raltegravir increases the telaprevir AUC, and HAL is now making me push the buttons. Actually, I think for today's audience, uh, we'd have to say Watson is now making me push the buttons. In fact, next year, maybe Watson will be giving all of these lectures. Okay, interesting. So I probably misled you a little bit by my statement about raltegravir and telaprevir. Uh, it turns out that um, if, if you modified statement number one by saying telaprevir does not alter raltegravir PK in a clinically significant way, I think, the, I think that would be the correct answer. But in fact, telaprevir increases the raltegravir AUC in a statistically significant way. And so number three is actually the best answer here. So what are the data to back that up? Well, here's a study that was presented at ICAC last month uh, by the folks from uh, Vertex looking at the pharmacokinetic interaction between telaprevir and raltegravir. So if you look at raltegravir concentrations in healthy volunteers who get uh, telaprevir, in fact, there is a small boost in, in raltegravir concentrations, about a 30% increase in the area under the curve although there's a fair amount of uh, variability in these data, and that's typical 
of raltegravir pharmacokinetic data given the current uh, formulation. Uh, and this is just the individual changes in telaprevir AUC in the patients, in the healthy volunteers participating in this study. And what you can see is that all of them either stay the same or go up, except for this one person. And why this person dropped on telaprevir down to almost undetectable raltegravir concentrations, I can't explain unless this is a person who missed their dose or didn't swallow their dose on that PK day. So that's a little troublesome, but, but it's not consistent with what happens in, in almost everybody else. And, and so um, if you look at the effects of raltegravir on telaprevir PK, looking at it the other way, these curves are really um, overlapping. And so raltegravir has really no effect on the pharmacokinetics of telaprevir, which makes sense because raltegravir is a substrate for glucuronosyl transferases. It's not a substrate for cytochrome P450s, and it does not inhibit or induce the cytochrome P450s that are involved in telaprevir metabolism, namely CYP3A4. So the author conclusions are that raltegravir did not impact telaprevir PK, but telaprevir did increase the raltegravir AUC by 30%. Um, telaprevir did not, telaprevir modified raltegravir metabolite concentrations in the same way. That is, there was also a 30% increase in raltegravir glucuronide concentrations. And that suggests that the interaction probably is a, is a reflection of better absorption of raltegravir in the presence of telaprevir, possibly due to an effect on uh, drug transporters, either in the intestinal tract or in the liver or in both places. The combination was generally well tolerated, and the conclusion is you don't have to adjust doses when you give these two drugs together. And as I mentioned, this is another combination that's on the safe list for co-infected patients who have to have their HIV and their HCV treated simultaneously with the caveat that it's going to lead to patients having to take pills four times a day. Okay, what about other uh, antiretroviral drugs? Well, there have been studies of telaprevir and tenofovir, and you may want to remember this for the purposes of your post-test. Uh, there was a drug interaction study of telaprevir and uh, uh, tenofovir at standard doses, and it found a 30% increase in the tenofovir area under the curve, which is interesting because that's the same magnitude increase you see when you give ritonavir with tenofovir. So some consistencies here between the effects of HIV PIs and HCV PIs. Uh, no effect of tenofovir on telaprevir PK, fortunately, and that is different from tenofovir's interaction with the uh, HIV drugs. Um, what about telaprevir and efavirenz? Um, a drug interaction study, uh, DDI stands for drug-drug interaction, not didanosine. Uh, drug-drug interaction study of, uh, of uh, standard dose telaprevir and efavirenz showing that efavirenz decreased the telaprevir AUC by 20%, but decreased the, the um, uh, uh, efavirenz trough by almost 50%. So in order to try to get around that, the folks at Vertex did a study where they gave efavirenz, tenofovir, and a, an increased dose of telaprevir, three pills three times a day instead of two pills three times a day. 
And what they found was only small changes in the concentrations of the three drugs as compared to baseline when the drugs were not combined. And their interpretation is that if you're going to use telaprevir with efavirenz or efavirenz-containing drugs like atripla, you should increase the telaprevir dose from 750 to 1125 milligrams three times a day. So I will tell you we are doing this at Hopkins in people who are on atripla and don't want to go off of it, but we have encountered problems with third-party payers not being willing to pay for that boosted dose of telaprevir. Remember now that's $75,000 for a 12-week course instead of $50,000 for a 12-week course, and this is an off-label use of telaprevir. So if you're going to do this, just be aware that you may run into reimbursement issues. Okay. I want to mention that there was a presentation at EASL in April, the European Association for Studies of the Liver meeting in April, looking at pharmacokinetic interactions between telaprevir and methadone, and the good news is that telaprevir has a very modest interaction with methadone, about a 30% drop in the concentrations of both of the methadone stereoisomers, the active stereoisomer and the inactive stereoisomer, with some variability in results. So I think you can safely use telaprevir in your patients on daily methadone maintenance, but be aware that there may be some patients who are kind of pharmacokinetic outliers who could experience withdrawal symptoms on that combination and would have to have their methadone dose increased. But you shouldn't have to increase the methadone dose much because there's only about a 30% average drop in methadone concentrations when you give those two drugs together. Okay. I want to say something about bosuprevir. There is the impression out there that bosuprevir has fewer drug interaction issues than telaprevir. That perception is driven by the fact that bosuprevir came to market with many, many fewer drug-drug interaction studies having been done. And so I believe the main reason for that perception, I think it's a misperception, is because there just aren't as many data about bosuprevir and other drugs as there are about telaprevir and other drugs. So what we know about bosuprevir, it has an interesting metabolism. It's a little bit different than telaprevir. It is a substrate for cytochrome P453A4, but it's also a substrate for an enzyme called aldoketoreductase, which Merck claims is its primary elimination pathway. However, if you give bosuprevir with efavirenz, you see very similar outcomes as with telaprevir. You see a decrease in the bosuprevir AUC by about 20%, and trough concentrations fall by nearly 50%. You see an increase in efavirenz concentrations by up to 20%, which looks almost exactly like what was seen with telaprevir. And bosuprevir can't be boosted at steady state by ritonavir, also exactly like telaprevir. Here's a statement you also may wish to remember for your post-test. Bosuprevir is a strong inhibitor of 3A4, just like telaprevir, and it increases a 3A4 probe drug, midazolam, which is a sedative hypnotic that's cleared exclusively by 3A4. And bosuprevir boosts the midazolam concentrations 
to about the same extent as Tilaprevir does, suggesting that its potency as a 3A4 inhibitor is very similar to that of Tilaprevir. Bosuprevir is a substrate for P-glycoprotein. I'm not sure yet what effect that's having on its drug interactions. And unlike Tilaprevir, however, Bosuprevir did not increase tenofovir concentrations. Again, that's an interaction that's thought not to be due to cytochrome P450, but due to drug transporters. Okay. So both of these drugs are cleared by hepatic metabolism. Both are substrates for 3A4. Both have complex interactions with other cytochromes, and both have significant potential for clinically significant drug-drug interactions. And you ought to think of them just like you think about boosted PIs, because the clinically significant drug interactions with these agents are going to be very similar, as we saw at the beginning with the concurrent fluticasone. Don't get fooled into this false sense of security that because something isn't yet in the package insert, you don't have to worry about it. I would think about these drugs the same way you think about any regimen that has ritonavir. So I want to finish with this question. This is a question that has no right or wrong answer, but this is really strictly for informational purposes. The more we learn about these new hepatitis C drugs, the more we're going to find out about potentially clinically significant drug interactions and pharmacologic and pharmacokinetic problems in special populations. For example, pregnant women, people with end-stage liver disease and cirrhosis. So how are we as providers going to keep track of this? And I want to ask you, what's the best way you think we should be keeping track of new drug interaction data? So we have an audience response question about that. Do you like the idea of updated package inserts, dear doctor letters that come to you in the mail, assuming we have mail a year from now? Mandatory attendance at CME courses? I think Donna would like that choice. Web-based educational programs, smartphone apps, newsletters, peer-reviewed journal articles, or something else. And again, no right or wrong answer here. Tell me what you'd like, because we are in the process of developing educational resources to help people keep track of this, and we need to know what this is, in a sense, a needs assessment. So I think there's music. Maybe I'm just hearing things, hearing music in my head now. Okay. This is actually what I would have predicted. So this is, I guess this is good. No surprises here. Sixty-two percent of you want web-based or smartphone apps, which I think makes sense, and that's kind of how I am getting my information, too. But a smattering, you know, 40 percent or so, almost 40 percent, who'd like to get their information in other ways. So I think we're going to need a menu of resources to help people keep up with this. Good. Okay. Here's an example of what I think is a really, really well-done web-based application. This is the HCV Drug Interactions website created by David Back and his colleagues at the University of Liverpool. It's online now. It's up to date. Here's the link. It's in your handout. It's well-organized. It's nicely put together. It has good input from both pharmacists and clinicians. It gives you these tables. I don't expect you to read this, but it tells you if you shouldn't use two drugs together, you get something in bright red. If you can use two drugs together, you get something in bright green. And if there's no information or caution is recommended, then you get something in yellow. And the shapes of these boxes indicate the weight of evidence 
to back up the recommendation. And there will be other resources like this being rolled out in the near future. Okay, so uh, that was it. I hope, uh, hope you enjoyed this as much as I did, but I want some feedback about that. So here's my last audience response question. Uh, which statement best describes the value of this session? Uh, number one, I would have preferred more contemporary music during the countdowns. I wrote that thinking we were going to have the Brady Bunch as our music for this, but it didn't turn out that way. Number two, Dr. Flexner needs a new haircut. Um, I'm always looking for uh, places to improve my appearance. Uh, Tripp criticized me earlier in the day for wearing black and blue. I did tell him this is actually navy. It's not black. Uh, number three, frankly, I would rather be playing Angry Birds. Um, and to think I could have had 45 more minutes of Internet shopping. And number five, this was a very effective way of teaching this material, and I learned a lot. So please vote. Okay, good. Well, 22% of you had other ideas. I'll take that to heart. So uh, that's the end of my presentation. I want to thank Dave Thomas and Doug, Doug Dietrich who helped me with the cases. And before you come to the podium, let's do the post-test. So uh, we want to do the post-test. This is uh, for our benefit. Uh, which statement best describes the effects of telaprevir on tenofovir PK? You've seen this all before. Uh, Tilaprevir decreases tenofovir AUC by 30%. Uh, Tilaprevir decreases by 30%, but you can overcome that by increasing the Tilaprevir dose. Tilaprevir doesn't alter tenofovir PK. Tilaprevir increases tenofovir AUC by 30%, and Tilaprevir increases AUC by 30%, but you can overcome that by decreasing the dose. So please vote. Okay, good. 65% of you were paying attention. Okay, uh, same thing about bosepravir. Effects of bosepravir on midazolam PK. Uh, bosepravir decreases midazolam AUC, but less than that with tilaprevir. Bosepravir decreases the AUC, but to the same extent. Bosepravir decreases the AUC, but more than that seen with tilaprevir. And then bosepravir increases the midazolam AUC, but less than that with tilaprevir. Bosepravir increases the midazolam AUC to the same extent as tilaprevir, and bosepravir increases the midazolam AUC, but more than that seen with tilaprevir. So please vote. Good. Concrete information that teaching to the test works. So thank you all. I'm going to sit down and take your questions. And for the record, Charlie, I did not criticize the way you're dressed. I just said it's a good thing you live in Baltimore. Oh, oh, oh there's a difference. Okay, let's take some questions. Back Mike Crispin. Uh, the first patient you presented, uh, the 60-year-old man with hepatitis C who was taking um, Anti, uh, cholesterol lowering drug and hypertension drug, and then he also is also taking fluticasone for seasonal allergies, and it was intranasal fluticasone. Do we have to worry about intranasal or inhaled steroids when you talk about drug-drug interactions from a 
perspective of, of uh, metabolite, metabolites? Yes, so, so um, this, this is actually something I did. This is not in, well, it's not in the package insert yet except in a very general way. We know with ritonavir that uh, you get increases in su substantial increases in systemic exposure to corticosteroids with either nasal steroids or inhaled steroids for asthma. Um, and that's almost certainly because, you know, all of us who, t who use inhaled steroids nasally or, or for, uh, for bronchospasm um, get some absorption of those steroids, but they're broken down very quickly in your liver unless you block that breakdown with a drug like ritonavir. And so if you're taking those steroids chronically for more than a few weeks in the presence of a drug like ritonavir, then you actually suppress your um, pituitary adrenal axis and you get iatrogenic Cushing's. And if you then stop the steroids, you get secondary adrenal insufficiency. We see this all the time now with our patients who go to the orthopedic surgeons with joint pain and get an intra-articular injection of Kinelog because what happens is they get increased systemic absorption and exposure to that uh, um, steroid. And as it starts to degrade over several months, they've suppressed their adrenal pituitary axis and they come to the emergency room with symptoms of um, Addison's, of adrenal insufficiency, vomiting, low blood pressure, inability to sleep. This happens all the time because orthopedic surgeons don't think about the fact that this is what's going to happen when you give a Kinelog injection to a patient who's taking ritonavir. Tolaprevir and bocepravir inhibit this enzyme to about the same extent as far as any of us can tell. And so you can predict that if you uh, give bocepravir and tolaprevir in combination with uh, fluticasone or uh, inhaled steroids for asthma for more than a few weeks, the same thing's going to happen. And so, again, this is sort of consciousness raising, but I think this is something we all need to be aware of. And this is the easiest audience to educate about this. I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall when I try to talk to gastroenterologists about this because it's just not part of their vocabulary. Do we know if grapefruit juice has any effect on the new PIs uh, for hepatitis C? That is an excellent question because um, uh, grapefruit juice has a selective inhibitor of mainly intestinal cytochrome P453A4, and I don't know the answer to that. That's an excellent question. Here's another one, Charlie, from the audience. Uh, Coumadin interactions? Yeah, so Coumadin is interesting because Coumadin metabolism is quite complex. And those of you who have given Coumadin with ritonavir, the interactions are very unpredictable. Um, Coumadin is, is uh, metabolized mainly by a cytochrome P450 called 2C9. Tolaprevir and bocepravir have no impact on 2C9 activity. But there is some 3A4 um, uh, metabolism of Coumadin. And there are some reports of ritonavir affecting Accumulated metabolism, more induction than inhibition, so the need to increase the warfarin dose. But um, I, what I would recommend, I, I would say it's probably safe to uh, give tolaprevir or, bos or bosepravir to a patient on Coumadin, but I would certainly monitor the uh, APTT frequently in the first few weeks of therapy. I, I'm, there, I'm not predicting there's going to be an interaction, but unexpected things could happen. Back to Mike. This is in reference to the um, higher dose of 
telaprevir to offset the effect of ephedrine. I have a patient who I was able to get approval by Medicaid for the 1125 milligrams of telaprevir. Excellent. However, she failed telaprevir at week four. So I just want you to comment further on the statement, it will offset it partly. Yes, so that is not my statement. That's the statement of the people who actually did the study. And I think the reason they say that is it doesn't absolutely correct the otherwise deleterious interaction. And there was quite a bit of variability in response. And so some people are going to have more normalized concentrations of telaprevir and ephedrine when you put the higher telaprevir dose together with ephedrine. But some people may be at the extremes, either unexpectedly low concentrations or unexpectedly high concentrations. So this is a situation I think we need to learn a lot more about. And the more we can collect information about people like the patient you just saw, I think the better off we're going to be in making recommendations in the future because it would be a shame if she failed telaprevir because her telaprevir concentrations were inadequate, even with the increased dose. Charlie, you focused on the ephedrine interaction. Could you comment on the other NNRTIs that we're using commonly, nivirapine, rilpivirine, etrovirine? I can, and this is very easy. There are no data. And so there's basically no way to make any recommendations. And I frankly wouldn't use them until we have data. So basically we should stick to what we know at this point. I would say right now your options with telaprevir and probably with bosepravir as well are ephedrine-based regimens, raltegravir-based regimens, or boosted adazanavir-based regimens. Well, that gives us a lot to deal with. Yeah. And I will say there are studies in progress looking at interactions, for example, with darunavir and rilpivirine with bosepravir and certainly rilpivirine with telaprevir as well. So we will have a lot more data in the next six months. But for now, I would stick with the things where we actually have information. Any problems with suboxone in these drugs? Studies haven't been done. Great question. An important study that needs to be done, but there's no data yet. And I'd be cautious if I used suboxone with telaprevir or bosepravir. Charlie, in general, when you use an NNRTI and a boosted PI in the same regimen, which interaction takes precedence, or do we have to study every combination? So that's a difficult question. It's a difficult question to answer easily. The broader question, maybe you're trying to get at this, is do HCV PIs and HIV PIs always act the same? And I guess the answer is mostly yes, but there are some subtle differences. And so whether you're going to see the same interactions between drugs like ephedrine and rilpivirine and etrovirine with telaprevir and bosepravir as we have with boosted PIs, I just don't feel safe making a generalization about that. I think we need the data. Okay. Great. Charlie, you made it look so easy. I hope you all feel that way. That's how I feel. Thank you. 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 Thank you.